I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant U, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing. We're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. I want to welcome you to a very special episode of the Plant Strong Podcast. This week, I am live from the Esselstyn family farm with my parents, Ann and Essie, as we prepare for the kickoff of our ninth annual Plant Stock event, which starts tomorrow, August 14th. We affectionately coined the event Plant Stock back in 2011 for a number of reasons. One, the farm is located about two hours from the famed 1969 Woodstock event. Secondly, my grandfather, believe it or not, was the medical director for, for Woodstock. And then, and then lastly, we invite all of the plant-based Brock stars to take the stage at Plant Stock, just like Woodstock invited the perennial rock and roll stars of the time to join its stage. This farm, as you're gonna learn, has been in the Esselstyn family since 1675, and in fact is one of only two family farms in New York that have been owned and operated by the same family for more than 300 years. There's a certain magic in bringing plant stock back to its roots. The event may be virtual this year, but serendipitously, it also allows us to open our doors to thousands of you to this special place. In the past, we had to cut it off at about 500, 550 people. So today, I am sitting on the front porch with my mom and dad, and we're gonna reminisce about the early days on the farm. You're even gonna get a detailed play-by-play of my father's 1956 Olympic rowing race. I still get excited hearing about this special moment in his life, even though it's been you know, (laughs) decades and decades. And his Olympic birth started right here on the Esselstyn family farm where his dad, I should say nearby, where his dad treated patients, including a few very famous ones that you're going to hear about in the broadcast. So 
sit back, relax, enjoy this visit with my parents, and do join us if you can for our virtual plant stock immersive weekend that starts tomorrow. We're saving you a seat right next to us on the porch. Plantstock2020.com has all of the registration details. And if you can't join us live, know that every ticket includes an all-access video pass to watch later. Thanks. All right. I am here with my dad. This is, uh, this is fantastic. And, and I want you to know that you, I think, will now be the, the most prolific person on the Plant Strong podcast. I think this will be your fourth epi- episode that we've done together. And the reason why I wanted to pull you aside and do something right now is because obviously we're, we're at the farm in, in upstate New York. And uh, we've got our big plant stock 2020 event coming up. It'll be our ninth annual plant stock. And I thought this would be an appropriate time for us to reflect on your, your childhood, growing up here on the farm, and how it impacted you as a, as a, as a man growing up. And just, you know, we'll, we'll kind of let it flow and, and see what happens. But, um, you know, just for, for starters, um, how long has this farm been in the Esselstyn family? I think you were... Actually, uh, it was uh, you, my stepmother and you in the 1985 or six uh, went to Albany for the uh, tricentennial. Uh, which is a farm that had been in the same family for over 300 years. Yeah. So some, somewhere on the order of 1675. So the farm has got quite a tradition to it. <laughs> to, to put it mildly. Uh, I mean, that's, that's 300 and, if my math is correct, that's uh, 345 years. Yeah, we're moving on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think I've also heard that it's, it's one of two, two farms in the whole state of New York that have been owned and operated by the same family yeah. for over 300 years, which, I mean, incredible. Um, now, I, wa- I want people to know, uh, before we dive into this, that we're probably gonna have some distractions. We've got like six <laughs> six or seven grandchildren yeah, sure. running around, uh, and you know we're doing our best to kind of maintain order, but. <laughs> and of course, if Route 23, although it's uh, many yards from here, often will have some heavy trucks and motorcycles that'll uh, give their little echo. Yeah, yeah, so bear with us. Um, so wh- when exactly did you and your, um, your brothers and your sister and your parents move to the farm? Well, actually my uh, dad, although he spent a fair amount of time at the farm here growing up as well, his parents who lived at the farm, also his father was a lawyer working in New York City. So all that, <clears throat> Grew up in New York City when he went to uh, uh, he went to Yale and then he went to uh, medical school uh, two years at Yale and the last two years at Columbia and then he began his practice of surgery in New York City. We lived in Riverdale, which is a s- suburb of of uh, of New York City, until I was seven years old, and it, it, had, it had always been my father's dream to come back and practice medicine uh, up here uh, using the farm as a home base. And so it was in 1941, in September, that
that we moved from New York City uh, to the farm. So 1941, you were born in 33, so that makes you about eight years old. Well, I was seven because I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was about eight, three, I was eight, three months after we moved up here. Okay, yeah. all right. Uh, and um, what, I mean, so can you remember back, you know, coming from the city to the farm, that, that's a pretty big adjustment, I would imagine. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, you know, but it just seemed to flow, though. I mean, there was just nothing that was really difficult about it. With a, we were in sort of a little local uh, school, Clarvick School. Uh, it was easy to make uh, friends, and uh, I stayed at Clarvick School until the uh, eighth grade, and then, uh, <clears throat> and then the track began to get a little hotter when my <laughs> parents sent me to Deerfield Academy, uh, and I, I was there for all four years. I thought Deerfield was terrific. I really enjoyed the, the friendships there. I loved the athletics there, and <clears throat> fortunately the academics there enabled me to go to, to Yale. Uh, so speaking of Yale, so there's, there's, a, there's a history of Esselstyn's going to Yale. Obviously, I never went to Yale. <laughs> But there's a history of it, and uh, who was who was the first Esselstyn on in in our family line to go to Yale? Uh, probably my grandfather. Yeah. Okay. What was interesting was he uh, was from a farming family here at the Esselstyns, living in uh, in Hollowville, which is a little uh, town at the, uh, the other end of the farm, and in I think it was in eighteen. 78 that grandfather took the horse and buggy from Hallville to the town of Hudson which is right on the Hudson River then he got on the Hudson River day line and he went up to Albany where he had entered the state geometry contest grandfather won the state geometry contest and the prize was a scholarship to Yale University yeah. so it was the first time that anybody in the family had gone to Yale that I'm aware of and grandfather went to Yale and then my father went to Yale and my uncle went to Yale and uh, and then I went to Yale and and uh, and one of your sons, Ted, went to Yale. And that's right. And so, so your grandfather was his father. What did his father do? Was his father a a farmer? Yep. Right. So he he's the one that kind of broke broke the cycle a little bit. That's for sure. We went up from Hollowville <laughs> to New York City. That was breaking the cycle without question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so you went you you went to Yale, and uh, while you, when you were younger, growing up, can you remember like what were some of the main chores that you had? Uh, oh well, on, on the, the farm. On, well, yes, on the farm. Uh, before I went to Deerfield, uh, every most of my weekends were working uh, on the farm. It would depend on the season of the year as to what the duties were because remember what the farm had then 
were Aberdeen Angus beef cattle and a dairy herd. And uh, all the activities uh, on the farm really have essentially to do with nourishing the cattle. When you, when you plowed the fields, when you dissed the fields, when you harrowed the fields, when you planted the fields, you grow grain and you grow hay. For what? To feed, to feed the cattle. And so the, all the activities that I was involved in was running the, mach the machinery that would be responsible for, for growing those crops. And uh, it, was, uh, it got a little bit less interesting in the wintertime because most of the winter was spent shoveling out stalls and spreading manure on, <laughs> on the fields. But uh, farming was really highly instructive in the, many of the practical aspects of, uh, of living because the, the maintenance and the care of the living beings, naming those other, the cattle, the cattle, and at the same time, uh, nursing along and taking care of machinery. Because one thing you learn about machinery early on, it always breaks. Yep. You have to somehow be creative to be able to repair the machinery and uh, nurse it along so hopefully the, you decrease the amount of of, of breakage. I'm sure that that had a, an impact on you as far as just being a problem solver and always trying to figure out a better way to kind of... Uh, <clears throat> oh, I bet you there's been, been some spinoff without, <laughs> without question. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I just have to break in right here. Well, then make, just, sure, make sure people can hear you. I just have to break in. Well, then don't. Just have to break, <laughs> break on <laughs> and say that uh, Essie can handle a tractor yeah. as well as he can do a parathyroid. You should see the <laughs> detailed things he can do with a tractor. I just had to add that. <laughs> is that, so, is that what made you fall in love with, uh, <laughs> with, with Essie, the way he can drive a tractor and do a no, parathyroid? His attention to detail. <laughs> well, do you want to know what yeah, I, oh. I, want to, I want to know what, well, what made you really fall in love with Well, there he was in Cleveland, a medical student, fresh off the 1956 Olympics with a gold medal, and uh, handsome and tall. And I used to drive around his apartment <laughs> in my car, just hoping he might come out. I never saw him come out, but I was <laughs> hoping he would. Really? I did. And, and how, did you, how did you first meet? Because wasn't, wasn't there something Our fathers, that my father had also gone to Yale and knew Essie's father, but he knew him because when Essie's father was in medical school, yeah. he was on the side coaching freshman football, and my father was playing freshman football. So that's when they met, and we found in our archives a picture of at a banquet, a college banquet, uh, uh, with my father and Essie's father, both in the same photograph. Pic photograph. And what in the year was that? Probably that was, 19. That was probably about 1926 or seven. Yeah. No. Oh, well, anyway, yeah. it was a crazy picture. <laughs> well, that's, that's an adorable story. Um, so. That's the end of me. <laughs> no, <it's laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, as she just said that <laughs> You, you went to Yale, and obviously you, uh, you, you did some rowing while you were there. Um, what inspired you to do rowing? Why, why, why crew? 
Well, it was, uh, I, my freshman year, I uh, went out for freshman football, and that really was not very ex exciting. I wasn't particularly uh, gifted at what I thought I would do in football. And my roommate, on the other hand, had never having rowed before, decided to go out for crew. And he did very well, and he made the, he made the freshman crew, and they beat Harvard. And every time he'd come back from a race, he would, you know, be absolutely, you know, filling me with all these exciting things that had happened with rowing. And so the, in the, the summer between, between the uh, freshman and sophomore year, I uh, decided that I would try to go out for rowing as a sophomore. Now, I, I knew that I was behind everybody because they had rowed in the previous year. But uh, I was able to make an arrangement with uh, Bob Kippeth, who was the great swimming coach at Yale, who ran a conditioning class uh, three, we three weeks before Yale began in the uh, uh, fall of 1953. And so my brother and two fellows from Hotchkiss and myself, we lived in the Payne Whitney Gymnasium under Bob Kippeth's tutelage for three straight weeks and just doing nothing but working out so that one of when, the other people with when, you was Bucky Bush. Yeah, Bucky Bush, who was the youngest brother of George Herbert Walker Bush. And uh, it was pretty ex exciting for me to start rowing, knowing that one thing I didn't have to worry about was conditioning. So all of my focus really had to be on technique. And... Uh, that's the way it went all fall. Then we came off the water, and we had, uh, in the wintertime, we had bodybuilding for those who were going out for crew. And then we went out on the water, usually in the end of February, when the ice would come out of the Housatonic River. Uh, that's when we would start rowing. And uh, I, at that point, I, was, uh, I made it to the junior varsity uh, for our first two races. And I'm happy to say that of the first two races in 1954, the junior varsity won, but our varsity had lost. So as happens in those very fateful moments in rowing, when you're out on the water and the coach says to the coxswains, Alex and Jay, bring your boats together. And then everybody held their breath. And lo and behold, on the water, you were changed, your seats. That is, there were actually five of us from the JV who were put into the varsity. And those five varsity then came into the JV. We won our next race. And then we, we came in second in the Eastern Sprints and then we beat Harvard. So we had a, a uh, it was a pretty big exciting so wait, so, so first the, year. So you went from the JV mm -hmm. to the varsity mm -hmm. your, your sophomore year. Right. And how many other, how many other sophomores were uh, kind of got flipped into the, the varsity boat? Well, there were others who had earned their way. There, Tommy Charlton was in that boat, and so... Uh, a couple others? Uh, uh, no, Dave was not in that one. But it was, uh, yeah. it was exciting uh, to, uh, to be amongst a lot of the upperclassmen and seniors uh, as a sophomore, because that's you know, where a lot of the leadership was, and, and that gave a lot of depth to the boat. And it was pretty exciting for us to uh, 
to win those races and especially to to beat Harvard. The one that was was particularly exciting when we knew we were on the way in our sophomore year was when uh, this was 1954 and the, we rode in the Eastern Sprints. We were rowing against the group that won that, which was the the Navy crew. They were called the Navy Admirals. They had won the eight-oared race in uh, Helsinki in 1952, and they came back, and this was 1954. They were shooting for, again, 1956. They wanted to repeat as the Olympic champions. Mm -hmm. But when they, uh, it was kind of, kind of cute, when the, uh, uh, the stroke of the Navy crew after the Eastern Spence race uh, had never heard of, of Yale, came up to our stroke and Steve Reynolds and said, uh, who are you guys? And Steve looked, just put a smile on his face and said, we're the JV. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, okay, and so then what, 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 what happens your junior and senior year? Are you on the boat now for good? Are you well, uh, uh, yes, I got on the end of the boat uh, my sophomore year. I was there my junior year. I, uh, I did not row in the uh, sprints in my junior year. I had a, a bad couple of two weeks there when Jim was change, making some changes. So, but other than that, I was in every other uh, race through our junior year. And again, we beat Harvard. Uh, and now it came to our senior year, and lo and behold, 1956 uh, was the Olympic year. And the idea was to see if we couldn't somehow make it to the Olympic trials. And our greatest competition was, uh, uh, we thought, was Cornell. Because we beat Cornell in the first race of the year. The second race down at the sprints, they beat us by maybe three or four feet. And so now we... Is three or four feet a lot? Not a lot, not a lot. <laughs> when it came to the, uh, the next race was I mean, going to be at, at the uh, Olympic trials which were going to be held in Syracuse at Lake Onondaga. And I can remember that whole episode as if it was yesterday. Uh, when we left our training uh, spot at uh, Gales Ferry in, in Connecticut, we had to drive from there to uh, Syracuse. And the most direct way, believe it or not, went right by the farm. And it was kind of uh, cute because I know my stepmother was very apprehensive about what could she possibly treat these diamonds, <laughs> these potential, yeah. you know, Olympic trial contestants, and not uh, and do anything but enhance their their rowing, because they were going we were going to stop at our house for lunch. And believe it or not, my grandmother was then 83 years of age, and she was still alive. And when she heard that the Yale crew was going to be coming by for lunch and that they were potential, you know, for the, uh, at the Olympic trials, they were strong potential. Grandmother, even though she was legally blind, went out and found nine four-leaf clovers, which she carefully put in these lovely little envelopes with a nice little message to the crew, and they each have that to this day, and I think I gave mine. No, you you gave yours to 
to, yeah. Jill, to Jill and me, uh, I think on our wedding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for good, for good luck. Where yeah. is that? It's hanging in the kitchen. So after we had lunch, we drove up to Syracuse, and here we were uh, with all the other crews from the United States who had aspirations for representing the United States at the Olympics in Australia that fall. And the, uh, we were out practicing with our coach, Jim Rashmid, uh, up at the trials when, uh, apparently unbeknownst to any of us, the other coaches had gotten together and decided that Yale had a an early heat that was far too easy. And so behind everybody else's back, they changed the heat. So when we came in from our practice row, a reporter raced up to our coach and said, to, Coach Rasmit, are you aware that the coaches, while you were out there rowing, have changed your heat? And Jim looked at him and smiled and said, well, I really don't think that makes much difference. You see, I came up here to beat everybody, and I don't really care much in what order we do that. <laughs> Love that confidence. <laughs> and uh, so we uh, got through the heats and we got to the final of the Olympic trials. And in the final was the University of Washington and Cornell on our right and immediately on our left the Navy admirals, the crew who had won in 1952 in Helsinki who were coming back because they wanted to represent the United States a second time. That's, I mean, that's, that's quite a lineup. I mean, you got University of Washington, and they have quite a, uh, repu mm -hmm. I mean, quite a history, right? Right. The boys uh, in the boat. The boys right. in the boat and yeah. that, um, that amazing uh, comeback they had. And then these guys that won the Olympics, the previous, right. previous Olympics. Okay, so are you, are you guys nervous at all? Well, uh, we're we're ready. <laughs> were we ner sure we were ner nervous? And uh, remember, our our wonderful stroke, Bob Moray, after we had uh, st the start. At the start, the third stroke, his oar completely missed water, and he lost it in his hands, and that made Rusty, who was right in front of me, caught a crab where you, the oar dives deep, and it. it finally comes out when the boat goes far enough. So was that nerves? Was that all and that nerves? Was, oh, I, th I think that was, <laughs> no, but what happened was, it was in retrospect probably the best thing that happened because there was a shutter through the boat and we, we, we didn't stop, but we certainly s slowed. And immediately, and I've never, I never felt the boat have the, as solid a setup. Hmm. That is because when, you're, when your setup isn't solid, then the big men cannot get all their power on uh, without worrying about the balance of the boat. And for some reason, that, that boat right after that became like a rock. Hmm. And everybody was just driving off because they thought, my God, you know, we, we really blew it there. But suddenly the boat surged and uh, in, not, in not too many strokes, I began to be able to hear it. Once again, I could hear on the right, I could hear the shrieking of the uh, Cornell coxswain keeping his, uh, urging his team on when he, when he saw Yale coming up on them. And uh, our coxswain, Beck Lane, did a, a wonderful job. Uh, I mean, he, he had this technique of, of, of uh, asking for a power 10. A power 10 is when you really hit all your power. You can't hold it the whole race, but you can try to do what we call gain a man on them. In other words, 
although we aren't looking out of the boat, he's looking out of the boat. And if you're right next to somebody, you can so tell whether they're a man or two ahead of you or you yeah. are a man or two ahead of them. And he would say, after our power 10, he said, you got me a man, but in reality, we'd gotten him two. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and for people that don't know, there's eight men in the boat. Right. And then, plus and the, the cocks. Plus the coxswain. But he, does he count as a, a man when you're talking about? Absolutely he counts. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So uh, we had did a couple of power tens, and then it was quite apparent to us, even without looking out, that we had not only drawn even with Cornell, but we were really pressing him pretty hard and that we were going, we were going by them. And that, when you have that surge, when you not only pull up on the crew and you're even with them and then you go by them, yeah. that is just a surge to go even harder and stronger. And uh, we won by practically three quarters of a length. So there was absolutely no doubt about who had won the Olympic trial. And it was... Uh, they were very, like all the oarsmen there, they were very gracious, they were gentlemen, but it's... Uh, it's so so you, you, were, you were talking about how after that, the, the, the crab and the misstep at the start, how fantastic and solid the boat felt. Can you, can you count on your hands how many times the boat has felt that, that good? Once. <laughs> that was that time? That was that. And so was it also, would you say it was easy speed, or is there, is there such a thing as, as easy in, in crew, or I would, I would relatively just, I would speedy? Just, I would just say that there's, there's such a feeling that you're getting the job done when it's that solid, mm-hmm. that that is such satisfaction in itself. Yeah. I bet you could argue that makes it, what makes it easier is when you know that you're going by somebody. <laughs> isn't it though, isn't it, isn't it frustrating <clears throat> that how elusive that uh, that feeling can be. I mean, you guys were amazing, but you had you felt that feeling that one time. Did everybody else in the boat, you think, did you guys talk about it? Did they feel oh as well? Oh, my God. Oh, Rip. What? <laughs> Every year at the farm, we have a meeting, a reunion of the crew. I am the only non-crew here. Yeah. And the conversation is only about that kind of thing. The feeling, the, the two men, the power ten. Again, how it was, what happened, that's repeated every year. I know. And they're all so excited, and nobody, and we, I mean, I even kind of enjoy it. <laughs> well, but, but I'll go back to the question. Did they feel that, that same thing that you felt? In a different way. Oh. <laughs> yeah. No, they all did. Mm-hmm. At least from the memories that they have every year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Okay, so so you won the trials. What's next? Well, then it uh, got my life got to be a little exciting because <clears throat> we had uh, a, a, some bad weather at the trials, so that the trials had been pushed back for a day or two, and I was supposed to have matriculated at that time since I was I had I had graduated from Yale, but here I was trying to go into medical school, and. I hadn't yet satisfied the organic chemistry requirement. So uh, long before the, well, a month or two before the uh, Olympic trials, I knew that we were probably going to have the summer off, and it's not like, it, not, not like it is these days. But I had therefore uh, found out that I could go to summer school in organic chemistry at Cornell 
and satisfy the requirement for medical school. But because the Olympic trials got pushed late, I was two days late starting my organic chemistry uh, at, uh, at Cornell. Pretty exciting course, I'm sure. So, <laughs> so <clears throat> that, was, th that was six, six weeks, yes, I, <laughs> I, did, I did pass. And after that six weeks, it was now probably about the, near the end of August, and we had to start getting ready for the Olympics. I mean, it's when you think about where we stand today, nobody ever would have taken two, two months off once they had qualified for the Olympics. They would be training right up until the, but that was the way it was in that era. And I was just about thinking that after I finished uh, rowing, and so remember, the, this was Australia, so the Olympics were in the end of November. And uh, I didn't really feel that that was a way to go to medical school, so I thought I would just keep on rowing, and then after uh, the Olympics, maybe uh, take a trip around the world, come back and then start medical school the following year. But my draft board uh, said otherwise. They said, if you're not in medical school, you will be drafted. And uh, yes, you could row the Olympics, but you would be then immediately go into the Army as a private. And so I then went to Yale Medical School and said, look, uh, I've, <clears throat> uh, I've got this situation where I'm <laughs> rowing in the Olympics, but I also have to be in medical school. And they said, well, we, we never really got a chance to answer your application. Why don't you think about coming to Yale? It would work out perfectly. So... Uh, Times have changed. So I started. So I had a. Uh, I started in September of 1956 at medical school in the morning, but every afternoon, of course, the guys would come by and pick me up, and we'd go out and practice rowing. Uh, so it was sort of a pe peculiar initiation to medical school, to only be there half time, and then by the first of November. Uh, of 1956, I, I just left medical school with the team because we went to uh, Australia. Mm. And uh, that was where we were then sent, not in Melbourne or Sydney, we were s sent to Ballarat. And Ballarat was where they had the Olympic uh, events at Lake Wenduri. And Lake Wenduri was shallow and filled with reeds, but they had this, I never forget, this famous reed-cutting boat that would cut these reeds, which would allow a passageway through these reeds in this lake for the crews to uh, compete. Uh, and we were living in an old army uh, barracks with uh, all the other people who had water sports, the, the canoeists, all the other oarsmen, and uh, it was... Where there where we trained for about three weeks before our events began. Now, <clears throat> when the events began, with this had uh, this was on November eighteenth uh, or nineteenth, and we had not had a single race uh, since the trials. So that was almost six months. You hadn't had one race for six. That months. Uh, that was uh, the trials were back in June of fifty six. Now we were. Uh, and so the coach was also quite happy with our conditioning, but uh, in the first race, we were uh, we came in third, 
in the in this uh, first heat and but fortunately in rowing uh, they don't cast you out if you if lost in the first race because in case you broke equipment or an oar or something you've come all that way you get to go into what they call the repechage which in French means to fish again can I, can I stop you for a sec yeah so you got third was there anything that happened? Did you guys just not feel, did you feel rusty because you hadn't raced oh, in six months? We were totally flat. Just flat? Just flat, yeah. And so you guys, did you did you know it from like, as soon as the gun went off, were you guys like, oh, this is not good? Yeah, it, it was pretty apparent. And so, <laughs> so for people, what's the distance of the race? 2,000 meters. 2,000 meters, and roughly how long does that usually take? About a little over six and a half minutes. So it's six and a half minutes of basically all, all out just mm -hmm. like, Going, going crazy. So when we lost that first race, we went into the repechage with the other crews that had lost. <clears throat> and if you came in first or second in the repechage, you could then get back into the regular flow because all the other crews that had won were having a day off, whereas we were rowing in the repechage in the very next day. Since we won the repechage, we were in the semifinal. Now, it was... In the semifinal, we were against Australia, who was one of the crews that had just thrashed us that first day. And we were a pretty young uh, crew. So in the semifinal, from a mental standpoint, we had to do well against Australia or beat them in the semifinal to be able to convince ourselves that we could really get this job done. And I should share with you, though, that the atmosphere... In the evening of that first day when we lost that race so badly, our coach, we got together and we went for a, just a walk in this field away from the army barracks and he, Jim, Jim Rashmit stopped for a minute and he said, well, well, men, he, I owe you all this, call, we called us men. <laughs> We've, uh, one thing I'm sure of, that uh, I have got the finest crew that's here, and I came to Australia to bring back gold. <laughs> so that was Jim. It just, you know, that was the way it was, flat out. And uh, so the semifinal started, and we obviously were jumped by Australia because they always seem to want to get us at the start. But we really ground on them and we ground on them and we ground on them and we just really put our, um, put the pedal to the metal. <clears throat> and we won by about uh, maybe a deck length, which is not much, maybe eight or 10 feet. Hmm. And it was a very interesting article that appeared in this Australian press within hours uh, saying Australia is guaranteed a victory tomorrow. The silly Yanks overdid themselves because what happened, a number of us went, <clears throat> went so flat out, <clears throat> including yours truly, we were, we were vomiting over the sides of the, of the boat <laughs> after we won because of the effort put out. But uh, despite the, the comments of the Australian press, <clears throat> uh, we didn't feel that we had uh, lost the race because we went we, that we were going to lose the race because we went flat out 
we were actually just the reverse. We thought, well, hell, if we can beat them once, yeah. uh, and being as young as we were at age 24, with a good night's rest and a full meal or two, we should be fully restored. So that uh, let me. So I want to understand that was the semifinals. And so there were two heats in the semifinals, and was it the top two in each heat went on yeah. to the finals? And the, yeah, and the final, was, the final was composed of Sweden, Canada, the United States, and Australia. And when we were sitting there at the start, I'll never forget another mistake that Australians made before we even started the race. We were sitting at the starting line, and at that moment, we were passing the shake. Now, passing the shake is an old racing tradition for Yale, where the coxswain reaches the stroke's hand, shakes hand, stroke turns around, shakes the hand of number seven, Rusty. Rusty turns around, shakes my hand. I turn around, shake Charlie. Charlie turns around, shake Don's hand. Well, while we were doing so you this. You didn't have the bump back then? No. <laughs> no shake. Wait, no, it was hand. Was it like this? Yeah. Was it like this or was it like this? Like that. Okay. <laughs> and that's, uh, at that moment, when Charlie was shaking Don's hand, Garth Manton, nice guy, number five for the Australian crew, leans over and yells, I say it, Charlie, haven't you met Don yet? <laughs> Here he was, mocking our tradition, and that gave everybody's adrenal gland a little bit of a squeeze so that when the race started where Australia usually jumps, jumps us at the start, and that was their plan, jump us at the start, hold the, the lead that they got, and then finish us off at the sprint. Well, they may have jumped, but we jumped with them. <laughs> and so for the first uh, uh, quarter of the race, it was flat out even. Sweden began to fall apart, but Canada, United States, and uh, Australia were neck and neck. As a matter of fact, there's a thrilling uh, audio. Uh, and some video. Uh, the, the version of, uh, of, the, uh, of the entire race. We'll include it. Show how, uh, how, uh, how tight it, it really was. The, like, once again, our coxswain came to the fore because uh, he didn't ask for a power 10. He asked for a power 20. We had never heard. <laughs> we had never heard of a power 20. And, but and what, what does a power 10 or power 20 mean for people that don't know? That means that for those 10 strokes, or in that case, uh, 20 strokes, yeah. you really absolutely, you give it everything. Okay. You, and you're, you can't hold it for the whole race, but you give it enough. And Is there such a thing as a power 5? No, powered. Well, I'm sure there could be, <laughs> but usually it's a power we use 10. A, yeah. All right. So Beckling calls for a power twenty. <laughs> at, how, at the how, end. how far into the race? Uh, this is probably a little after maybe uh, five hundred meters. Of, okay. Power twenty. And uh, then uh, he, uh, after we finished the power twenty, he yells, "You got me a man." Well, that was not the truth, and Bill was about hiding from us. We gave him two and a half men, <laughs> almost three. So he was, uh, when he said giving a man, I mean, it, it was it was exciting to think we've got something. But then, lo and behold, after about another 500 meters, he said, I want another Power 20, this one for Jim. 
For Jim, the coach. The coach. The coach. Yeah. And everybody was so devoted to Jim, so he thought he'd really get an extra squeeze out of all of us, which he did. This time he said, you gave me a man and a half. <laughs> we gave him three men. So uh, then uh, as we got a little bit uh, closer, he, uh, well, I think with almost 300 or 400 meters to go, he screamed as loud as he possibly could, you're going to win it. You are going to win it. And we still had racing to go. But with those words, I mean, everybody just took whatever strength they had left and poured it on. And uh, and we were able to win by three quarters of a length. And Canada was second. Australia was third. And Sweden was fourth. <laughs> and then tell <laughs> what happened to the people in the boat. Oh yeah. So what happened to Charlie? Didn't 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 somebody have to be taken off to the oh, hospital? Oh, that was yeah. John Cook was John, uh, Cook. Uh, John Cook was exhausted to the point where he couldn't stand up to and get. Life his. magazine caught a picture of Essie. Describe that picture. Well, it's well a, he's just flat out. Oh no. No, you're crying. He, well, it was it was it was With the exhaustion. You know, I think it. <laughs> I think it was the, all the feelings that basically came together in one. All the hard work, the the joy from winning the gold medal, but all that. But it was one of life's two-page pictures. <laughs> it was great. Just goes to show you how hard up life was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, so how did I mean? Did you so did you really think going into that that you guys would win the gold? I mean, looking back, were you like, was there any doubt in your mind? Oh, we we were that's what was that we were going for. We were we weren't we we weren't preparing to try to get a silver medal or a bronze. Wow. No. Yeah. Uh, and so those guys. I remember uh, Tommy Charlton when uh, uh, within minutes after they we got back to the boathouse having received the medals, and there were reporters there, and, and Tommy was never never short for words that. We are the toughest crew ever put together, and we beat the finest. <laughs> I think it is so awesome the way my father can recall every little nuanced detail of that Olympic race. And as I'm sure you can imagine, I am so proud of him and love hearing about the drive, the energy, and the mindset that it took that Yale crew team to achieve the the ultimate success and there's no question it inspired my career as a swimmer and a professional triathlete and while there may not be an Olympics for our pets they still deserve the best possible food so that they too can live life to their fullest potential wild earth dog food is that gold medal fuel source with only whole food plant-based ingredients and optimal digestion support. Try it today. Visit the episode page at plantstrongpodcast.com to claim up to 50% off your order. So how, how do you think winning the gold medal helped uh, helped shape you as a person, like going, going forward well, and everything you did? did. <laughs> what it did do, I should tell you, Obviously, I'd missed an awful lot of medical school. I mean, I, I was over there in November and December. Finally, in January and February, there was a lot of whining and dining for us back in the States. Uh, 
So it wasn't until February that I was began to get to thinking about medical school seriously again, and and uh, and although uh, the the nice folks at Yale uh, suggested that I could make it up easily during the summer, I just didn't feel that that I wanted to uh, have uh, a first year of medical school be quite as thin, and uh, I followed through with my original plan, which was. Uh, to go to Case Western Reserve University. As a matter of fact, that's, that in and of itself was kind of an interesting story that I perhaps overlooked. But in January of 1956, before we ever even thought about the, the go rowing and the Olympic trials, I had no idea how good our crew would be. I can recall when I was interviewing for medical school in Cleveland, and I was speaking to the associate. The medical school you were wanting to go to so much because it was had very unique programs back then. Right. Uh, <coughs> Lucky me. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was uh, interesting in talking with this associate dean, and he said, "Well, if we were to offer you a place uh, in uh, to matriculate." in September of this year, 1956. Can you uh, think of any reason why you, you would not accept a, uh, this offer? And uh, I looked at him and I said, I'm, no, I'm quite flattered. I, I, quite frankly, I'd be delighted to be here, but I, in, the, uh, in the spirit of full disclosure, uh, I just have to share with you a uh, uh, the fact that I, I do, do not intend to give up uh, rowing my senior year. And uh, it means a, a lot with the associations and so forth. And I should mention, I said also, if, if we're lucky enough to have a crew that is good, very good, and very fast, uh, we're going to enter the Olympic trials. And if we happen to be very good and very fast and faster than anybody else at the Olympic trials, it would mean that we would have to go to the Olympics. And they are, uh, this year, they are in the fall in Australia, which means that uh, I could not be in Cleveland if we run the crew. So we both sort of smiled. And he said, well, that's, that's kind of an interesting story. He said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we worry about that <laughs> yeah. if it ever happens? So were you able to go back to him and say it happened? So, of course. So as, soon <laughs> yeah. as, as soon as they won the Olympic trial that same day, I called uh, Dean Jack Coey and said, Dr. Coey, uh, our crew entered the Olympic trials <laughs> and we have won. I cannot come to medical school at Cleveland this fall. And he said, no problem. All we can do, if you're up to it, we'll just delay it for one year. Mm. And I said, that sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So after winning the gold medal, you, you came back uh, to the farm for a little bit, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. what, what was the reception like here in, in Claverock? Well, it was fun. It was actually the, uh, the local sports team got very excited about the fact that they had an uh, Olympic gold medal in, in the community, and they asked, they wanted to have a uh, sort of some sort of a recognition or a night, and they asked if I would 
uh, see if they, some of the other crew would come. And sure enough, the local it was held as a local Elks club, and we had uh, five of the crew uh, came, drove up from Yale to the farm to be a part of that uh, evening, which was which was great. Yeah. So you spent the obviously your whole career at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, I was obviously raised in in Cleveland. At any point, did you consider moving up to the farm and leaving Cleveland, or was that well? Well, no question, the farm is terrific, and we've uh, every. Cleveland's terrific too. Every year of my <laughs> every year of my life, when we were in Cleveland, we would come back here for some time during vacation to, with my parents and so forth. And but the uh, the Olympics does something that. Uh, for some people, I think the Olympics is sort of the, they feel that's the the ultimate in perhaps what they're going to ever achieve in life. But on the other hand, I think there are others for, for whom the the efforts of uh, achieving uh, Olympic status uh, teach you some pretty exciting lessons about tenacity of purpose and perseverance and, uh, and how... It, important those qualities can be in what you might try to achieve or later on in life as well. well I, I, I think that uh, that tenacity of purpose uh, has, has served you well, especially as you've sought to, to show everybody very successfully that uh, we all have it within our capacity to prevent, not only prevent, but also reverse right, heart disease. But I mean, also, Rip, as yeah. he's hit the wall of people who think he's as he's hit the wall of people who thinks he's crazy, that this is impossible, and he just perseveres with, yes. you know, same old thing. And Dr. Sprouts, but so what? Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to have a thick skin, and obviously you do, and you feel you feel pretty good about yourself on a lot of levels. <laughs> um, so r right here, we're on, we're on the, the, the porch of the homestead. You didn't grow up in the homestead. Uh, you grew up near this house. But who, when you were growing up, who lived in this house? Well, grandmother, uh, grandmother was widowed when grandfather died in 1938. And she lived here until 1958 when she died. Yeah. So it was... Uh, Largely grandmother that was... But she only came here in the summer. Right. It was, it was not winterized, right? No, that's right. Uh, and so didn't you say that was it, it was it every Sunday at 1 o'clock you'd come here for, for dinner? Absolutely. Uh, all, all summer long, all spring when grandmother was here or early fall, we always had Sunday, uh, Sunday lunch uh, here with grandmother. And grandmother would say if you didn't accept seconds... What kind? Of, what did she say? Well, no, what, grandmother had the uh, even though she was uh, somewhat partially uh, blind, she had an incredible, incredibly acute vision. When when my father, who uh, was establishing the first uh, group practice in almost in rural America in 1946, when he would uh, interview candidates, I can remember. One particular psychiatrist who was being interviewed by my father for a position at the Rip Van Winkle Clinic, and 
Dad always loved it when they came for an interview uh, on a Sunday because he could take them to Sunday lunch with the grandmothers. And, and I could remember this fellow, uh, he was sitting just to my grandmother's right and she, uh, and of course, gave him enormous heavings of potatoes and roast beef and vegetables and had insisted that he have seconds. And then he was just, you can just see absolutely, he was totally uh, <laughs> full of food. In comes the dessert, which is this mammoth, big peach shortcake, the best looking thing you can imagine. Oh, and, yeah, and, peaches now. and it was my <laughs> grandmother. Uh, who always insisted on cutting the peach shortcake herself and making the serving. And when she saw that this was a friend of and of my father's, she really wanted to make sure he felt that he was uh, welcome. <laughs> so he, she gave him this enormous piece of short, uh, peach shortcake, and he didn't dare uh, offend. So you could see he tackled this thing and got it down. And then... Uh, as the dessert was sort of ending, grandmother looked around, said, now, who, who would like some more peach shortcake? And, and Dr. Ladke, you know, just uh, looked up and said, oh, ma'am, I've, I've had plenty. And she said, you've had plenty? This is delicious. And he said, it, ma'am, it was, it, was, it was so wonderful. Maybe I'll just, I'll just have a half a piece. And she then took her uh, <laughs> knife and cut him this enormous piece. And as she was passing it to him, she said, my husband used to say, what kind of a man is half a man? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, now, <clears throat> so we're, we have this backdrop of, uh, it's almost like a football field that's behind us here. Um, in the last seven of the last nine years, we've had our annual plant stock event here. Do you have any particular memories of uh, of these plant stocks? Oh, I mean, they were wonderful, and we we, I mean, I personally prepared for them by growing geraniums. I mean, not geraniums, uh, zinnias, and I had tons of zinnias, and we also have other things, flowers. So I would make these great arrangements for all the tables, but I also put them inside the porta potties. And we had I don't know how many porta potties were up. Eight? And you oh, had no, 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 no. Ten? Probably at least ten, maybe twelve. So okay, so I will never forget when one man <laughs> came out of the porta potty and he said, you know, I have never been in a porta potty with flowers. <laughs> I felt like this was the perfect plant stock. <laughs> well, it was, it was, it's crazy how much planning went into those live events from the generator, the oh. jumbo screen, <laughs> uh, the jumbo screen TV, the, you know, the, the caterer, the, the, the caterer that basically brought a 18 wheeler in here and made all the meals out of there. And then he spent the night. Yeah. In, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the, the crazy huge circus tent that we would put up, all the little side tents that we would put up, uh, you know, the, the ice machine that we would have to bring here, the dumpster, dumpster. the dumpster. The uh, signs we put all around so people weren't going into the barns and yeah. places they shouldn't yeah. go. The parking 250. Oh, <laughs> the parking, 
Yeah, parking we, all the we cars. We still have in the basement these big poles with flags that would show you where you would park. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was magical. It, it truly was. Oh, but, it was magical when people left. We had flares, uh, so that you know yeah. it was very, very yeah. nice. But but we we really we we kind of outgrew this venue, right? I mean, this the capacity here was about 500, and it's one of the reasons why we went to Asheville, North Carolina. But it's a, another great reason why we're so excited. You know, to to Be here due eventually. to due to due to COVID nineteen but to bring everybody back to the farm for our virtual live streaming plant stock 2020. So people get to get to visit, visit the farm that has been such a precious place for all of us. Um, can you tell me, um, so your, your dad, um, he, so he started the Rip Van Winkle clinic here and who were who were some of his like most famous patients? Do you remember? Well, the uh, although the patient that I re recall most vividly from that standpoint would have have been while I was still in in New York City, and when I was seven years old, I was introduced to. Uh, well, actually, actually, it was. I was in the uh, first or second grade, and my teacher came to me at Fieldson Ethical Culture School, which I was attending in Riverdale, and she said, your father would like to, he's out at the uh, end of the pathway, which down to the sidewalk, and it was right in the middle of the school morning, and he said, your father would like to see you down there. And so I put on my jacket and went down there, and there was my dad with a guy that was just about as tall as my father and uh, really a very good-looking fellow. And he and my dad said, uh, I'd like you to meet my good friend, Mr. Lou Gehrig. And for the last year of his life, year and a half of his life, while Lou Gehrig was dying of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, dad really <clears throat> being about the same age, having an athletic background, and he was sort of a, given the responsibility or was asked, and he would see uh, Lou Gehrig practically every day of his life and, until he uh, until he died. Mm -hmm. And up here at the farm, for many years after that, the widow of Lou Gehrig, Eleanor Gehrig, uh, was really, a, often for 10 days to two weeks at a time, she would be a guest uh, at the house because uh, of the of the friendship that uh, had developed uh, between my father and uh, Eleanor Gehrig as she was watching her famous husband literally, sadly, waste away and, and die. Yeah. So your your dad passed away in 1972. Um, I think I remember I was, mm -hmm. uh, I was about nine years old. Um, and to me, you know, it's a crying shame that that uh, that he passed away at 72, um, if I'm not mistaken, was it 1972? Right. Yeah. And when I think about, as we were talking about earlier, um, you know, winning the gold medal was quite an achievement, but it was a stepping stone to a lot of other greater achievements. How proud do you think your father would be with the achievements that you've had since the gold medal? <laughs> 
Uh, I think we'd have a lot of fun talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you would. I know you would. But you know, but but especially thinking about, you know, well, Dad knew. Also, Dad knew knew about persistence because he himself was a. Uh, uh, not only was he, he was a heck of a, a good guard and tackle at Yale's uh, undefeated football team, but he was really re quite renowned for the, uh, although he was about 224, 25 pounds, he was enormously strong. As a matter of fact, he went to, uh, <laughs> uh, when the, uh, traditionally, when he, that they would go to the world, the um, county fair, uh, every September, and at the county fair, there's always somebody who's a strong man who says he'll take on anybody in the crowd and so forth. And so my dad raised his hand and went up and started wrestling with this guy who, uh, and dad didn't know that the chokehold wasn't uh, barred. So the guy th quickly threw a chokehold on dad and he succumbed. And uh, But then two weeks later, he found out exactly where this uh, same uh, carnival was going and sure enough he drove his car up there and found it uh, where this place was and raised his hand again and volunteered to wrestle the guy and uh, he, got, he got a hold of him in both arms and just absolutely bent him right down to the ground and, and won it within about 15 seconds <laughs> <laughs> and tell me if I remember this story correctly the first time that they, that he put the chokehold on him and your dad volunteered, did he have a bunch of friends that yeah. were in the crowd? Yeah. And the second time, he went all, all by himself, right. right? Yep. I mean, that takes a lot of just chutzpah and courage. I mean, right? But he obviously felt... Oh, he, he, was, he, was, he was pretty confident. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I love the picture of your father. On, on a rock, a big rock over... Oh, where he's standing on. And he's standing on his hands where if he fell, I don't know what would have happened to him, but there he is, and he's wearing one of those black yeah. bathing suits type things that, you know, with a... Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, one, yeah. Of, the, one of the old school, school. kind of anyway. bathing suits, <laughs> for sure. Um, well... <clears throat> Do you guys, do you, do you have anything uh, else that you want to add? Uh, anything that's exciting that's going on right now in, in your work or uh, anything you want to share? Well, I think that, that uh, Ann and I are just so uh, proud and delighted that, that we've seen such an affection for the uh, farm from all of you children and our grandchildren and we're just so uh, delighted and confident uh, in the, the fact that uh, when we pass it along, it's going to be absolutely shared with such <laughs> confidence. And uh, and we're just proud and delighted of the values that uh, that you all are able to show. Yeah. And I'm astounded at what you, Rep, yeah. have achieved with the Engine 2, oh my gosh, I am so excited that the Engine 2 products are coming back. <laughs> At least I want certain things to be sure to come back and rip. Yep. But anyway, the, you, you and your team have been amazing. Well, we haven't talked too much about uh, medicine in this interview, but I will uh, have to say one thing, and that is that 
uh, I think the reason that Mummy and I are so delighted and uh, proud, <laughs> proud that you've gone, gone into the, uh, this capacity of, of having these amazing immersions and having the public be aware because I've, you've often heard me say that, <clears throat> really, that we are truly on the edge of what could be a seismic revolution in health. And the revolution in health that is before us is never going to happen with the invention of another pill, another drug, another stent, another bypass, another procedure, another operation. But where the seismic revolution will come about is when we have the will and the grit and the determination to share with the public <clears throat> what is the lifestyle and most specifically, what is the nutritional literacy that is going to empower them as the locus of control to absolutely annihilate chronic illness. And Rip, we congratulate you what you're doing for that. Yeah. Listen, you know, uh, as you, I've heard you say many times, and I'll throw it right back at you, I'm just holding, <laughs> I'm just standing on the shoulder, on the shoulders <laughs> of, uh, of you, of you and Anne. So thank you. Um, all right. Well, with that, that's well, you know, Rip, one other extraordinary <laughs> thing, yeah. really, truly extraordinary, is that Essie and I have four children. All of those four of you are plant-based. I mean, and and passionately plant-based. Even the, I mean, Jane and you out there, and Rip and um, Ted and Seb, too. But all ten of our grandchildren are so passionately plant-based, also, and it's just it astounds me. And the older they get, the more it gets to their pushing it out. So it's really astounding yep and it's a legacy that you guys have passed down and hopefully we'll continue to pass it down all right with that peace engine two keep it playing strong <laughs> and maybe a handshake too i think we should do a handshake too right thank you again ann and se for everything that you've done for your kids and your grandkids you are creating a legacy that's going to last a long, long time. And thank you all of you for listening and welcoming my family into yours each and every week. I want to welcome you again to join us for Plant Stock 2020 that starts tomorrow. Not only will you hear more about the, the Esselstyn Farm and my family's history, you're also going to be cooking and learning right alongside many of your favorites in the plant-based movement. We can't wait to share this intimate weekend with you, especially in a time where optimal health and community has taken on a whole new level of importance. We're here to support your journey to complete wellness and while it may not include an Olympic gold medal, we consider each and every one of you Plant Strong Champions. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, Wade Clark, and Carrie Barrett. I want to thank my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Ann Kryl Esselstyn for creating a legacy that will be carried on for generations and being willing to go against the current and trudge upstream to the causation. We are all better for it.